Okay. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Picking up where we left off from last week. Please follow along with me. Solomon writes, I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expanded in doing it. And behold, all was vanity. And a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting Only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Let me pray for us, for God's grace in our time in his word. Lord God, we seek your truth as we come to your word. Lord, I pray that you would help me in my weakness, that I would not get in the way of your truth. But, Lord, even use uh, someone as weak as I to speak your truth. Lord, by your spirit, give us understanding. Change us. Convict us. May we worship you. May Christ be exalted. Lord, I pray that all of this would be for your glory and your glory alone. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.
Has anyone heard uh, of the man by the name of Ash Ketchum? Yeah. Ash Ketchum? You guys know Ash? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know Ash Ketchum, right? If you don't know Ash Ketchum, um, I met him many years ago when I was a young lad. Uh, and Ash, for all these years, has sought out to be the best Pokemon trainer in the world. The very best. The very best. Sorry. The very best. Like no one ever was. And in order to do this, in order to become the greatest Pokemon trainer in the world, Ash needs to travel all around the world. And as the song says, he's got to what? He's got to catch them all. And really the show, if you've never seen it or heard of it before, it has many subplots throughout. Very good, very good. Uh, they're actually all the same, but still, very good. Uh, and, and the underlying goal, though, the underlying goal of all this is for for Ash to catch more and more Pokemon, right? There's a new Pokemon, and he's got to catch it because he's got he's to catch them all. And, and while, of course, this is a fictitious story, I, sorry, okay. I know it seems very real, but it's fictitious. Uh, that idea of, of got to catch them all uh, actually really spilled into its merchandise, real life. Uh, I don't know if any – does anyone here collect Pokemon cards? Okay, a few of you guys. Yeah, I know it's kind of coming back, right, Damon? We had an issue with this at school, remember? All the yeah, yeah, now, that, that was an issue. Um, but I remember, like, especially when Pokemon first came out, um, Pokemon cards uh, was just a huge collector's item. Uh, and you had to buy them all. Like, you really, you, you got to catch them all. Like, you really had to. And you buy them in these packs, right? And you still do this. And you have, like, these books or these sleeves. And you got to collect them all. And they have these different things or whatever. And see, some of you guys are like, yeah, I'm still doing this, right? Hayden, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, okay, very good, very good. And, and as a kid, uh, there, there was Pokemon cards, of course, that we collected. There were other things that we, the same kind of thing, that you have to have all of them. Uh, I mean, sports cards was a thing. I don't think sports cards are as much anymore. Um, Beanie Babies was a big thing in the wow. 90s. Uh, I, some, you like Beanie Babies? Who said that? McKenna? McKenna. Yeah? There was uh, a, a friend of mine um, who I ended up marrying um, ended up had boxes and boxes of Beanie Babies in their attic. I'm not going to say who. Um, Crazy Bones was a thing I collected. Probably no one even knows what Crazy Bones are. Yeah, they're kind of like marbles, but they're little yeah, figures, little plastic little faces, yeah. you know? <laughs> okay, I, that, that was my thing. I used to go uh, where the Willows is, you know, the Willow Shopping Center, there used to be this store called Danny Brainy, and um, like where Eureka is now, and I used to buy my Crazy Bones there, and I had this bag, this, you know, these gallon-sized bags of Crazy Bones, uh, and the feeling was, like, if you had the biggest collection, right, if, if you had the most... Beanie Babies, if you had the most crazy bones, Pokemon cards, whatever, then, then, then you made it. Like, 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 you were cool. Like, you were the best. And, and, and as a kid, like, I, I collected quite a bit. Only for all of them to one day be gone. I don't, do not have any of them anymore. Uh, surprise. Uh, I do remember the day at a garage sale, I sold all of my crazy bones. I mean, I spent, I don't know how much on crazy bones. But these gallon-sized bags, I sold all of them for a total of two dollars. I would have bought. <laughs> I know, right? But that—that's what I was the going rate at the time. Now, there, there's a common belief that that the more you gain, the the happier you will be. And, and even at a young age, like kids are tempted with this, uh, even without even being taught. I think, like they're they're tempted to be the one with the most toys, right? Like 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 you look in the corner of the room and the kid is hoarding all the toys and doesn't want to share them. And so you have to teach kids like to share with others. Rue, you're like, yeah, your son in my class. <laughs> I know, I know Rue. <laughs> or like even like in Halloween, right? Like, like you collect all the candy and what do you do? You get home and you're like, my bag weighs more than yours, right? Like I have more candy, right? Like it's all about, like you already have way too much, more than you eat. Like, no, I will eat it all. You might. You should not, right? But, like, who has the most candy, right? Or, or whatever. You get older and, who, you know, the more of the video games, the more nail polish, the more shoes, the more clothes, whatever. Like, the more of whatever it is that you get older, the more money you have, the more cars you have, the more houses you own for some, right? Like, it just goes on and on. And we feel that need 
Or rather that we need, in order to be happy, we need to have more. That the more we have, the happier we will be. And here in this chapter, Solomon sets out to prove this wrong. That joy and satisfaction, meaning, is not found in obtaining more things. If you think about it, I'm sure at some point in your life, you prayed to God. You begged him maybe on your knees. You prayed that he would give you something. Maybe a phone. Maybe, maybe a dog. Maybe, maybe a relationship. Maybe a job. Maybe an A in a certain class. Whatever. Like, God, I need, please, I need to pass this test. I need to pass this class. Whatever. And you pray and you pray. And you prayed so hard because if you were to have this thing, whatever this is, if you had this thing, then things would be so much better in your life. And you would be so much happier. And maybe God gave you that thing. And maybe it made you happy for a while. But it was only a matter of time until your sights were set on the next thing that you need in order to be happy. See, we, we believe the lie that says the more we get, the happier we will become. Well, tonight we will see that gaining more things of this world will not bring you ultimate satisfaction. In this chapter, Solomon shows us the futility of pleasure, of wisdom, and of work or, or accomplishments. And so first we will examine Solomon's exhaustive test of pleasure-seeking. And then we'll see how Solomon shifts his test to his wisdom and his accomplishments, only to find that death is inevitable no matter what. So what does it matter? Like, what does it matter if we're just going to die? And then lastly, we will see that true joy is indeed obtainable, but it is found only in Jesus Christ. Okay? That's where we're going tonight. Our first section, the test of pleasure, verses 1 through 11. The test of pleasure. And it's not uncommon to, to seek meaning and satisfaction in the pleasures of the world. And so often we seek the, the next thing, right? The next pleasurable thing, the, the next experience, the next new toy. I remember in uh, probably around 2000, 2001, I think it was probably 2001. I wanted a PlayStation 2 so badly, and I saved up and saved up, and me and my brother, we saved up and saved up all, everything we had, so we went down to Best Buy, and we bought the PlayStation 2, and oh, I remember holding that box, and thinking, we have it, we finally have it, the PlayStation 2, and we set it up on our, like, big old giant, it was like this big screen. You know, and plug in the component cables, all that. And we were so happy. We were like, yes. We were happy until the PlayStation 3 came out. <laughs> and then we got to get that. Right? I mean, it's the same reason why you see every year you watch it on the news, a line of people sleeping on concrete to get the new iPhone. We must get that new phone and we have to have it the day, the second it comes out. We have this deep desire to always have the next thing and to always have more, to not be satisfied with what we do have, but to long for what we do not have. We're told that if we are able to, to obtain pleasure, if we're able to obtain pleasure in this life, then we will truly be satisfied in this life. Like we associate them as one. If we have pleasure, then we will be satisfied. It, like, like who, who wouldn't be satisfied with pleasure? You think about it, like, yeah, that makes sense. Like, who wouldn't be satisfied with pleasure? In fact, the definition for pleasure, at least found in the dictionary, is a feeling of happy satisfaction and enjoyment. That's how you would define pleasure, a feeling of happy satisfaction and enjoyment. So by definition, wouldn't pleasure give us true satisfaction and joy? Well, in Solomon's quest to find meaning and satisfaction in life, he directs his tension to the pleasures of this world. He says he tests it. Look at verse 1. Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, is what he's saying to his heart. 
He seeks out to prove that if, that if anyone were able to find true, lasting satisfaction in the pleasures of this world, it would have been him. But even Solomon could not do so. Solomon sets out for this test to find satisfaction and pleasure. And he says, I couldn't do it. And the temptation, though, will be for us to not believe Solomon. And for us to think that, that maybe we can find satisfaction in the pleasures of the world, even if Solomon could not. And Solomon will list all of these ways in which he sought to obtain satisfaction through the pleasures of the world. And some of you will be tempted to think, yeah, but I would have done it differently. And oh man, if I could be in your shoe, Solomon, I wouldn't have blown it. Like, I would have been able to find satisfaction. And look at all that you had, Solomon. Like even if I had just half of what you had, I would be satisfied. I hear people all the time do that. When you see a famous movie star or celebrity, they take their own life, let's say. They commit suicide. And I hear people say, man, they had so much. What a waste. What a waste. I wish I had their money. I wish I had their fame. I wish I had their pop. I wish I had their whatever it is. The reason wish you had that you had what they had is because you think it would bring you the satisfaction that you so desire. In fact, it's the same satisfaction that they desired. However, they found that it did not succeed in satisfying them. Solomon's going to show us that he did it all. I mean, he did it all. That no one could obtain more pleasure than him. And yet he concludes it's all meaningless. So let's look at some of those pleasures. The first pleasure Solomon lists are laughter and wine. Both laughter and wine. I'm pairing them together in verse 2 and 3. He says, I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. You can almost imagine that the, the king sitting on his throne, drinking the best wine, watching the best entertainers perform, throwing the biggest party, just laughing the night away. But in the end, the party was over, the laughing stopped, and the king was still dissatisfied and empty. It was fleeting, just like our breath, like last week, remember? It's just, it's gone. It's vanity. It's Havel. Now, he's not condemning laughter, nor do I think he's condemning the drinking of wine. The, the, the point he is making is that when a life full of laughter is what you aim to live for, what, what, what you seek to find pleasure and, and numbness to life's problems by, by getting drunk, which, which is a sin, you will be left empty. The promise of joy and satisfaction that you thought it would bring you will vanish. Solomon is saying you will not find true satisfaction in the laughter and the numbness of alcohol or, or any other substance. It promises you happiness, but it leads you to despair. And it leaves you empty. And then he gives us a list of pleasures, all of which he himself experienced, and yet it left him empty. First was his real estate, which really his real estate was like none other. Let me read again verse 4 and 6, uh, 4 through 6. He said, I make great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Wow. I mean, he built extraordinary houses he built houses for many of his 700 wives. He built God's house, the temple. He built his own palace, which was even bigger than the temple. He had the most beautiful vineyards and gardens. He had an elaborate irrigation system that was far ahead of his time. I mean, this guy's pumping in water, fountains. In fact, even if you go to Israel today, you can still visit some of the pools of Solomon. I mean, this guy had it all. The real estate he had, it, it, it was beyond grand. One commentator said, Solomon tried to create a new garden of Eden. He tried to get back to paradise, but one cannot get back there in this fallen world. 
You see, he sought to find pleasure in his land, in his home, in his agriculture, in his engineering, in his architecture. He sought to bring paradise back. But paradise is never meant to be here on this earth. One day God will create the new heavens and the new earth. But that is not right here, right now. And yet sometimes we try so hard to make this life heaven. Or, or, or at least as close to heaven as we can get. And so we move to places around the world where we can have more land. We seek bigger and better homes. We seek, we, we, we seek to make our lives as comfortable and as grand as possible. Seeking to be satisfied in the pleasures of this world. As if this is, the pleasures of this world is what this life is all about. Now he also had servants to do everything for him. Verse 7, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I mean, everyone would do everything for him. And I'm sure that sounds like true satisfaction for probably many of you, right? Like, yeah, I'd be fine with that if I didn't have to do anything. Like, wouldn't it be nice to have someone do all of your chores for you? Wouldn't it be nice for someone to do all your homework for you? For someone to do everything for you? Like, yeah, just kick back. I don't got to do anything. Wouldn't you find pleasure if you didn't have to do so much? Well, Solomon had servants upon servants. And he says, uh, what, what, whatever he says, boom, it's done. Servant, take care of it. He didn't have to lift a finger. Sounds like a good life, maybe. Solomon says, no. Even the ease of life is not satisfying. He was also wealthier than anyone else. Continuing on in verse 7, he said, I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I mean, his possessions and his gold and his silver was greater than anyone else who'd lived. And not, not only that, but because of his military success, he had the riches of the other kings and provinces. He was wealthy. He had power. I mean, those two things, wealth and power, are, are two things that many people devote their entire lives to gain. And they pursue more and more money because they believe that if they had more money, then they could buy whatever it is that they need in order to make them happy. And sometimes we look at others who have more money than us, and we see the things that they buy with their money. And we think, man, I wish I had that money to do that. I wish I had money to buy that. And we wish that because whether we realize it or not, we think that that would give us satisfaction in life. The reality is it will not. At least not lasting satisfaction. It would maybe for a while until we need to buy the next thing, you see. Not only that, but he had the best entertainment one could desire. Verse 8, continuing on, verse 8. I got singers, both men and women. One person put it this way. Uh, that, they explain it like this. That we want all the, 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 the movies, right? Or we want all the music. Like we want all the entertainment. We, as much entertainment as we can get. I mean, think about all the streaming services we got. Like, yeah, man, I got the Netflix and the Prime and the Disney and the Hulu and the Bulu and all this stuff, right? Like everything. I give me all the entertainment. Solomon didn't need all the streaming services. Like, like Solomon didn't need to buy the CDs. Yeah, do you guys even know what CDs are? Yeah. Okay, okay, I'm pretty sure. All right, Solomon, Solomon didn't need to buy the CDs. Like, he just bought the band. Like, you see what I'm saying? Like, like, like you buy music from Taylor Swift, like the CDs, and he's like, I'm just gonna buy Taylor Swift. Like, Taylor, just, just come to my palace and play for me. Like, you, I own you. Any entertainment he wanted. He could get. So he, uh, he has it all. And then lastly, he indulged in sexual pleasures. It says at the end of verse 8. Well, he says, I got singers, both men and women. It says, and many concubines. The delight of the children of man. He had 700 wives. That's a lot of wives. <laughs> and 300 concubines. A concubine is a woman who, who is there strictly for sexual pleasures. Is that not our, our culture today? Is that not the, the, the struggle of many today? Is that not the lie that is told to us today? And 
and not exactly like that, obviously, but but we, we, we are told that if, if you're not happy with your spouse, then, then leave them because you deserve true love. I, I hate the movies, the rom-coms, whatever, where like they're married with, to someone, but then they fall in love with their true love. And so they leave this person so that they can go be with their true love. No, you are a married woman. Don't go after that barista boy. Like... <laughs> Now, our society may not accept people to have 700 wives. That's good. Our society doesn't accept 300 concubines. That's good. But I do think they do the same thing. They do accept it by masking it in a different way. And, and our society will, will push pornography on others, which is acting sexually immoral with hundreds and thousands of people who are not your spouse. And we're told that we will be satisfied by acting in these sexual and moral ways. But in the end, you are left empty. I mean, based on what is documented, it's likely that Solomon slept with over a thousand women. And he says he walked away empty and dissatisfied. And look at what he says in verse 10. It, it, it's quite incredible. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. You see that? Whatever his eyes desired, he got. He did not deny himself anything. If he thought this would give him pleasure, then he gave it a try. Why not? Oh, this wife? Nope. Oh, this wife? Nope. Oh, this wife? Nope. 700 times. Let me try 300 concubines instead. Whatever my eyes desire, it's mine. I want it. I want the pleasure. In fact, and he could do it. He had the resources to do so. But in the end, he concludes that it was empty. That he was left with nothing. That it was vanity. That it was striving after the wind. That there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Will you learn from Solomon? Will you learn from his test? Will you not... Not see that he, he had all the resources to test this out. That if anyone could find satisfaction in the pleasures of this world, it would have been him. Do not think, oh, that was a long time ago. If he could do this today, then he'd find satisfaction. He didn't have Netflix. He'd be satisfied with Netflix. No, there is nothing new under the sun. You will not find true meaning and satisfaction in the pleasures of this world. Heed Solomon's warning. He was able to fulfill every single one of his fantasies. But in the end, he was not satisfied. And yet we think, oh, if I just had more. If I just had more, if I had more money, if I had more friends, if I had more experiences, if, if I had this pleasure, if I had that pleasure, then I would be satisfied. I would truly be happy when blank. I would truly be happy if I had blank. The truth is, you will not find true satisfaction apart from Christ. You will not find true satisfaction and meaning and joy and the pleasures of this world. This can only be found in Jesus Christ. Where are you seeking fulfillment in life? In your life? Where are you seeking satisfaction and joy? Where do you find meaning for your life? Is it outside of Christ? If so, it will leave you empty. I promise you that. His word promises you that. So the question we must ask then is, well, should, should the Christian not seek pleasure in life? Is the Christian life just, just a pleasureless life? Well, I think, and some of you may be familiar with this, I think John Piper's teaching on being a Christian hedonist really applies. A Christian hedonist, he says. A hedonist is, is someone who lives for their own pleasure. That's what a hedonist is. And they live for their own pleasure. And a Christian hedonist, as Piper would say, uh, it, it seems like an oxymoron. Like a, There can't be a Christian hedonist. A Christian cannot be a hedonist of any kind because a Christian should not be seeking out their own pleasure. 
But John Piper would say otherwise. He'd say, no, you should be a Christian hedonist. And he makes the argument that Christians should seek out their own pleasure. The question is, what is the Christian seeking his pleasure in? That's the difference. A Christian ought to be fully devoted and zealous for seeking his own pleasure in Christ. That's the difference. In Christ. That they find deep pleasure and satisfaction in Christ. And as the Holy Spirit is now indwelling you, Christian, your desires are changing. And they are changing to be more and more aligned with Christ's desires. And what are Christ's desires in which our desires ought to be in line with, ought to resonate with? What are his desires? The glory of God and for his Father's will to be done. And we ought to, as we seek to be more like Christ, Christian, we ought to desire the glory of God above anything else. And we ought to desire his will to be done. And we ought to find extreme pleasure in that. Yes, find pleasure in God being glorified. Find pleasure in his will being done. So we ought to be zealous for our own pleasure. Yes, but that pleasure ought to be rooted in Christ. Christian, do you find pleasure in God's glory? That's actually a good question. I mean, really think about that and what that means. Do you find pleasure in God's glory? Do you find pleasure in his will? Do you find pleasure in worshiping him in all things? This ought to be the desire of your heart. If so, then pursue this desire. Pursue pleasure. Pursue finding pleasure in Christ. So that's Solomon's first, the test of pleasure. Secondly, we see the inevitability of death. The inevitability of death. Verses 12 through 23. Since Solomon cannot find ultimate satisfaction in pleasure... He directed his efforts towards his wisdom and his accomplishments, only to find that in the end, death is the great equalizer. Isn't that kind of depressing? It doesn't matter what wisdom you have. It doesn't matter how much you've accomplished. In the end, death awaits us all. That's the conclusion that Solomon reaches. So let's explore how he reaches this conclusion. First, even the wise will die, he says. Even the wise will die. Now, he's not saying that wisdom is completely useless. Okay, now what does he say? He acknowledges the benefits and the advantages of wisdom. He does admit that living a life of wisdom is better than living a life of folly. Verses 13 and 14. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. He's saying to live in wisdom... Is to live in the light. And to live in folly is to live in the darkness. It's like when I was younger and I, I, you know, I had a sleepover at my friend's house, let's say. And in the middle of the night, I had to wake up to go to the bathroom. And all the lights are off. But, you know, we're sleeping in the living room. And I have to go walk to the bathroom. I, I don't know the house, but I don't want to turn on all the lights and wake everyone up. So I'm stumbling through a dark, walk, you know, trying to walk and run into the coffee table, run into the lamp, run into the table, like all, run into all the chairs, everything, right? Because well, I don't know. I can't see in the dark. If I had to turn on the light, it would have been better, but I couldn't even make it through the hallway. I needed to turn on the light to see where I was going. That's what Solomon's saying. He's saying wisdom is of value. It, it, it helps guide us through life. It's, it's like turning on the light. Wisdom is like turning on light to your path. To live in folly is is to live in darkness. If you live in folly, you will struggle to get through life. So there is value. There is blessing in heeding wisdom, yes. But in the end, both the wise and the foolish person dies. While wisdom is, is of value, that value has an expiration date. Even to obtain all wisdom, such as Solomon, the wisest man on earth, you cannot escape death. Death awaits the wise 
and a foolish person. So Solomon says in verse 17, I hated life. Like he's just honest. I hated life. Because he's frustrated at the fact he cannot escape death. As is the case with many people today. People are frustrated with the reality that they face death. And so we seek so hard to prevent death. And for good reason. We should seek to prevent death. We should seek personal health. We should seek to help others when their lives are at risk or are in decline. But this ought to make us pause and contemplate how we view our life and how we view our inevitable death. I believe that the person who is in Christ will view both of these, their life and their death, very differently than the person who is not in Christ. The Christian ought not to hate life, but they ought to celebrate life. And of course, even Christians, they go through extreme sufferings and hardships. This is not to suggest that, that if you're a Christian, that you always need to have a smile on your face and you always need to say, everything's going great. I just love life. There are moments in which you won't love life. And that's okay. We live in a fallen, broken world. And we feel the effects of sin. And we don't love that. And it's okay not to love that. But the general disposition of the Christian ought to be one who has joy in this life because they understand that it is a gift from God and they know that they are richly blessed by God and they know that it is all undeserved and is all by His grace. And as a result of this, the Christian ought to make the most of their life. Do you see? The Christian ought to celebrate life and live life to the fullest, that is, unto the Lord. So Christian, do not waste your life. Live in wisdom, knowing how to navigate through the twists and turns of life, making the most of it for the glory of God. Are you a good steward of this life that God has given you? Or are you wasting it? It is a gift from Him. Do not waste your life. But live it fully devoted to Christ. Now the Christian also views death death differently. See, the Christian does not need to fear death, but they can trust in God's perfect, sovereign plan for their life, and they can long for the day when they will see Jesus face to face. As Paul says in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ, and what? To die is gain. It's not that Paul wanted to die, but he understood what awaited him, as he says in verse 23, to be with Christ is far better. But he understood he still had a mission and a purpose here on earth. Christian, do you long for the day to be with Christ? Do you long to see him face to face? Can you say, for me to live is Christ? That that is what your life is about. That's what living is about. Is it about Christ? And can you say to die is gain because it's far better to be with him? See, Christian, we must have a proper view of life and death. This life is short and is a gift given to us by God. And we have one life here on earth to live for the Lord. And we must not waste it, but we must live it for the glory of God. And one day this life will be over. And we can be ready for that day in eager expectation. Not that we want our life to end, but that we long to be in the presence of our Savior. Both can be true. And Solomon is frustrated. He hates life because he knows that it doesn't matter how much wisdom he has. In the end, the wise and the foolish person have the same ending. Death. But Christian, how we view our life now and how we view our death to come is greatly impacted when Christ is at the center of our life. Mm-hmm. The second thing that he sees here is that no matter how much work you accomplish, you cannot take the fruits of your labor with you past the grave. Solomon again is frustrated with the inevitable death to come because he has some great accomplishments, but he cannot take any of the fruit of those accomplishments with him to eternity. So he once again says, it's all vanity, the work under the sun. Remember, that is the work apart from Christ. He's saying it's meaningless. 
Verse 18 and 19. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the men who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. He's saying, you work so hard. And you can't take any of it with you. And and you end up leaving behind this inheritance for for someone else. And who knows what they're going to do with it. They're likely just going to waste away everything that you work for. Now, does that mean that we should not be hard workers? Does that mean that there is no point to toil and work? No. Please do not go home and your parents ask you to do something. You say, oh, it's vanity, Mom. (laughs) Why? The toil is meaningless. Don't say that. Remember, Solomon's lens is that which is done under the sun. Under the sun. But Christ changes everything. Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. The Christian should have the greatest motivation to work hard because they ought to be working unto the Lord. And as we mentioned last week, I think this verse is going to come up a lot in Ecclesiastes. We mentioned 1 Corinthians 15, 58. That says that the Christian ought to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, what? Your labor is not in vain. He says, your labor is not in vain, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. I mean, so far in just two chapters, we see Solomon say, this is in vain, this is in vain, this is in vain. Work, toil, labor, it's all in vain. But then here, that's because it's under the sun, right? He's saying it's under the sun, it's in vain, it's, not, it's apart from Christ. But then we reconcile this with the truths of the Bible. And it says here in 1 Corinthians, but in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. You see that? So Christian, work unto the Lord. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that in the Lord it is not in vain. I'm not saying that 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 means that you need to constantly be reading your Bible. That you need to constantly pray. That you need to constantly go to church. And those things are good. And you ought to be doing those things. And maybe you need to be challenged to do those things more. Sure. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, and I believe Scripture is saying, that whatever you do, do for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 As a student, as a son, as a daughter, as a brother, as a sister, as a friend, as a teammate, as a whatever you are, and whatever you do in those capacities, do so for the glory of God. Labor. Labor for the Lord. And know that it's not in vain. We must remember, Christian, that we do not labor so that God is pleased with us. He's already pleased with us in Jesus Christ. We do not labor so that God loves us more. He already loves us fully and perfectly in Jesus Christ. We do not labor so we can earn credit or righteousness with God. He already has credited us with righteousness through the life and death of Jesus Christ. We labor. Because we desire now to live for the one who we love more than anyone. We labor because we desire the glory of God. Is that your desire? Are you so in love with God that you desire to labor for him? That you desire to live your life fully for the glory of God? Death is inevitable. We cannot change that. But we can change how we use and live our life for the glory of God. And by his grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, labor for the Lord. Lastly, just verses 24 through 26, we see the joy found in Christ. The joy found in Christ. Now, one may misunderstand Solomon as if he's saying, we cannot have any satisfaction or purpose here on earth. However, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, under the sun, we cannot find satisfaction, but we can find satisfaction in God. 24 and 25. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. God did create us to enjoy him and enjoy his creation. In fact, his creation was perfect. 
He said it was good. Adam and Eve in paradise with no sin. They were able to work. They were able to enjoy one another. They were able to enjoy creation all while worshiping God through it all. We were designed to worship God by enjoying him, even through the gifts of his creation. But sin came and ruined all of that. And now we're tempted to worship the creation instead of the creator. Does that mean that we cannot enjoy his creation? That we cannot enjoy what he has given to us? No, not at all. We ought to enjoy what God has given to us. In fact, that's the whole point. When we overvalue the things of this world, we will not be truly satisfied. When you overvalue and worship money, when you overvalue and you worship a relationship, when you overvalue and worship success, popularity, whatever it is, you will not be truly satisfied. It is when you enjoy God, the creator, and are satisfied in him. That you can then truly enjoy the gifts of his creation. God gives us good gifts and they are meant for us to enjoy them. So enjoy them. But we must not worship them. And we must not place them higher than God himself. Remember the problem is when we turn these good things into God things. Then they become bad things. But you see, Christ changes everything. Because in Christ and him being at the center of our heart and affections allows us not to idolize and worship the creation because we're worshiping Christ. And so in not worshiping the creation, but instead of properly worshiping the creator, we are then able to freely enjoy the creation and all that God has given to us. It is when we replace Christ in our heart with the things of this world that we're not able to truly enjoy them as we ought. Because we worship them. And we seek ultimate satisfaction in them. And that can only be found in Jesus Christ. See, here's the common misunderstanding, I think, of Christianity. There are many, I, I think especially in our society, in America I'd say even, who believe that God is a killjoy. You know what I'm saying? That, that Christianity is a killjoy. Because Christianity is just a, a bunch of do's and don'ts. That Christianity is about, about do's and, and don'ts. Like, like, uh, about don't do these worldly things. Don't do these worldly things. Which are fun and enjoyable. Don't do it. And just be sure to do these Christian godly things. Which, which are boring. And they're difficult to do. Maybe you feel as if Christianity is this way. Maybe you believe... That, 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 that if, if something feels good, if something feels enjoyable, then it's probably sinful. And I can't do that. And if something's difficult or requires sacrifice, then it's probably godly. And I should probably do that. That is not Christianity. The things that Solomon mentioned, laughter, work, gardens, homes, sex, these are not bad things. These are good things when used and are done so in the ways in which God has intended but sin has corrupted that. And we have rebelled against God and we have distorted his creation. But in Christ, we can pursue God's design for our lives and we can enjoy the gifts that God has given us. It's not about do's and don'ts. It's about enjoying it rightly with Christ at the center for his glory alone. But as we close... I want to say again, more does not always mean better. Solomon sought more, he sought more pleasure. And he was able to obtain more pleasure than probably anyone in this room ever will. Now at the end, he comes to the conclusion that even through all the pleasure, it is still worthless, meaningless, and empty. And he sought more wisdom. And he sought more work. And in the end, he realizes death will still come. And none of it will matter past the grave. All of this pursuit for more and more just to be empty. What is it that you are pursuing more of? What is it you're pursuing more of? Is it a right pursuit? Is it an idolatrous pursuit? Is it a God-glorifying pursuit? 
We ought to pursue things, yes, but we ought to evaluate our heart in the pursuits. And one of the biggest deceptions, I think, of the enemy is taking the idea of more is better and, and taking the idea of, of pursuit and applying it to salvation. As if the more we do, as if the more we pursue works, the more we pursue righteousness, the more we pursue godliness or, or, or Christian thinking or Christian living or Christian culture, the more we pursue this, the more we do, then the more we will be loved by God. And let me say this. If you are not a Christian, do not think that in order to become a Christian, you must do more. Because more is better and it gives you a better chance of being saved. Do not think that you need more righteousness of your own. Do not think that you need more church attendance. Do not think that you need to do this more, to do that more, to think this more, to think that more. Your standing with God, your salvation, is not about what you can offer God. If it was, we would have nothing to offer but our sin. Salvation and a right standing with God is based solely on the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's it. It is his perfect life and his substitutionary death and his victorious resurrection that is sufficient for us. Not what we can do, but what he has done. If you are not a Christian, do not place your faith in yourself or anyone else for that matter. Place your faith in Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on your behalf. And repent of your sins. Bow your knee in submission to him. Now, Christian, I close with this. I encourage you to remember all that you possess in Christ. Do not fall to more is better. Even in your sanctification, do not fall to the deception that if I do more and more for God, then the more God will be pleased with me. And the better Christian I will be than those who are not doing more. God loves the Christian who is, quote, doing more, the same as the Christian who is not. You doing more or you not doing more does not change God's love for you. What you possess in Christ is the fullness of his righteous account. And it is in him in whom he is well pleased. Christian, instead, let God's unchanging love and his infinite grace create in you a desire to do more. Not so that God loves you, but because he loves you. And find pleasure in living for Christ. And be satisfied in a life lived for his glory alone. Let's pray. Lord God, it is your glory that we desire. God, I pray that we not seek satisfaction in the pleasures of this world. But God, that we would find pleasure in living for you. We find pleasure in your glory. Lord, I pray that... We would make the most of the life which you've given to us. And we make the most of it by living for your glory. Well, God, I pray that you would work in each of our hearts in the ways in which we need to be convicted and changed. May you be honored and glorified if we pray in Christ's name. Amen.